Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. All views expressed in this podcast are my own and not my employer's. I'm going it solo without Michelle today because we wanted to record right away an interview related to the breaking news story of one of legal academia's most significant hashtag MeToo situations yet. So as you can see, we're doing something a little different today, but um, that's a topic that's very important for women at large and for the academic profession. I have with me Professor Krista Laser, who was the first to break the silence. I'm grateful to have here today with me Professor Krista Laser, a patent law scholar from the Cleveland State University College of Law, who also spent nine years as an attorney at the major law firms of Kirkland & Ellis and Wilmer Hale, both in Washington, D.C. Krista was the one to break the silence a few days ago about having been, as she says, asked out on a date by the then hiring chair of the George Mason University School of Law when she was seeking an employment opportunity there. In the aftermath of her publicizing this, several other women have come forward to share alleged problematic experiences with him of their own. Notably, this includes former students of his. But I want to let Krista share more of the facts with our listeners. Krista, these recent events started when the individual in question, and I trust scholar Joshua Wright, announced his departure from George Mason University last week. And of course, a lot of people wondered why somebody would leave a tenured position, as that's a pretty rare occurrence. For full disclosure, I have known Josh since 2008, though I've not spoken to him in years. I have also known Krista for several years. Krista, tell us what went through your mind when you saw the news on Twitter about his leaving GMU. So when I saw the post by Josh Wright announcing his departure, I noticed line after line of respected people in the legal community and law professors, including my own former professors, saying how wonderful he had been, how meaningful and impactful his tenure at the school had been, and what a blessing he was to students. It infuriated me in light of what I had seen from him. And I thought all of these people, especially my former law professor who I trusted and I admire, should know what what he's been doing. So I simply said, I'm going to put a screenshot. Thankfully, he sent it to me in writing. I'm going to put a screenshot of what he told me and what he asked me right after I came in for what I thought was a hiring meeting. So I put a screenshot of him asking me out on a date the day after I met with him thinking it was a hiring meeting. And then I started providing a little bit more detail in the comments about my experience. I was really surprised that for the most part, people did not push back on my allegations in the way that is typical when you raise sexual harassment allegations. And that's because so many people had had personal experiences or friends who had been who had been coerced or had inappropriate comments made to them by Joshua Wright. It was such a known secret in the antitrust community that nobody was surprised. Wow. So your tweet got hundreds of thousands of views very quickly. And then you started hearing from other women, right? Yeah. So I heard almost immediately after I sent that tweet from the woman who had filed the Title IX claim against Wright and found out that that is probably why he had resigned. So uh, Dorsey, who was incredibly brave, had filed a Title IX complaint against Wright. And she was the first one, I understand, to officially file that Title IX complaint against him for his behavior. And she suffered far, far, far worse from Wright, both as a former student and as an employee of his, including coercive sexual assault. And I, I'm so grateful for her bravery in, in coming forward and getting him to resign. But yeah, after I shared my story on Twitter, she reached out to me and she started publicly sharing her story as well, as well as Landry, another 
victim of Josh Wright, who was also in my mind forced into a sexual relationship with him because of the power that he had over her as a student and a, and a former employee. So these are uh, Kirkland and Alice partner, Elise Dorsey and Freshfield's Bruckhaus Derringer Council, Angela Landry. Again, these are people at major law firms and who have established uh, careers who were quoted in an article by the legal publication Law 360 uh, for their descriptions of the alleged pressures that they had been put under by Josh Wright, the years of alleged misconduct, uh, sexual relationships while the being in a position of being a student or being an RA, and then also later on at various points in their careers. A different article that has come out, uh, which is in the publication Global Competition Review, an antitrust publication, mentions that Brandy Wagstaff, an adjunct professor at George Mason, flagged allegedly inappropriate conduct between Professor Wright and his students because the students had allegedly confided in her uh, around uh, 2020. And Wagstaff said to Global Competition Review that she got the impression that, quote, Wright's conduct was an open secret at the school and that Wright was, quote unquote, untouchable, end quote. Apparently, based on the article in Global Competition Review, what she told them is that unless someone filed a Title IX complaint, there was nothing that could be done. And Wagstaff herself said she had had a sexual relationship with Wright when she was his student and research assistant starting in 2006, although she had not filed a complaint. So we have this alleged history involving quite a few people at various steps in their uh, in their career of uh, various ages. Now, let, let's come back to, to your situation. Let's go back in time a little bit. So when did this happen, this email exchange between you and him, this interaction between you and him, and you said there was also a overly long hug involved. Tell me a bit more about the situation you were in when you were seeking employment at GMU. Why was this not just any old job and what was kind of unfolding at that time? Yeah, so this was in early 2021. I had recently taken a position at Cleveland State University. And at the time that I accepted the offer, I was still married to my now ex-husband and he had agreed to go to Ohio and move there uh, with me. I was living in the Washington DC area at the time. And um, my now ex-husband had a small business in the Northern Virginia area. After we separated, I had struggles because my ex-husband was not willing to move to Ohio anymore. And so I was in a position where he was telling me that he would not let me bring the kids with me to Ohio. And I, I barely been away from them for, for a week at, at most when I had to travel for work and had been homeschooling them during COVID. It, the idea of being away from my children was horrifying. And so I felt very desperate at the time to immediately find a job in the Washington DC area. Now I had been applying for jobs as a, as a professor in the Washington DC area for several years, including applying multiple years in a row from 2018, I believe either 2017 or 2018 onward at George Mason and Joshua Wright was the hiring chair each of those years. And so every time I sent in my application materials directly to his email address. So when it finally seemed like I was going to be able to try to get a position there, I was really excited and it couldn't have come at a better time because I needed that DC job in my mind in order to keep my children. Did Josh know all this, the pressures you were under? Yes. So when I had announced my separation from my ex, I started putting out feelers throughout the schools in DC saying, 
I absolutely need to find a way to stay in DC and telling all the professors that I knew, including professors at George Mason, hey, this situation is really difficult for me. I'm commuting weekly to Ohio right now while living in Virginia, and I need to find a way to stay here. Otherwise, I could lose my kids. And then with Josh Wright in particular, he reached out to me, finally responding to my email after never setting up a meeting in the past in response to any of my emails after I had announced that I was separated. When we met up, and I I wanna point out one funny thing actually, he offered to pick me up for the hiring, for what I thought was a hiring meeting. And now that is not unheard of when you're visiting from out of town. That happens frequently if you fly into a city you go have dinner and the chair might pick you up at your hotel for that dinner. But he knew that I lived in Virginia. In fact, when I was scheduling with him, I mentioned, oh, I'm, you know, still in Virginia. I'm just commuting up to Ohio right now. And so he said, oh, okay, well then let's meet for dinner. I don't have time to meet for coffee. My, my first opening is dinner time tomorrow. And so I said, okay, that sounds great. He said, can I pick you up? I said, no, I don't think that's necessary. And then I drove over there. While we were at the meeting, we had a lot of conversations about the things that would be typical for an early hiring meeting. We talked about my curriculum proposal. I shared that I wanted to bring George Mason more into the future with its access to new technology and its uh, helping students understand the role of new technology in the law and how new technology can shape the law. And when I presented these proposals to him, he said, I think that's exactly what we need. We really need to come into the modern era and we need someone with an understanding of tech. You'd be the perfect fit. We have a couple other people that we're considering right now, two or three other people, but I have particular sway over the Dean's decision. He said that Dean always goes with whoever I recommend. So if we can get your proposal forward, I can get the Dean to accept you. And then we would just need to get the votes from the other people on the faculty, but I think you're good with that. You know everybody at George Mason pretty well, you're comfortable with a lot of other professors in the community and they know you. And I said, yeah, I, th I think I feel pretty confident that I could get the votes if you could get me that position and get me up for the vote. And then he said, yeah, I think I can do that. So then we started turning the conversation to other topics. Again, it's typical in these hiring meetings that you might talk about personal issues. And I wanted to emphasize that I really wanted to be in the DC area and why this was so important right now. So, and I had mentioned in my cover letters how important it is for me to be in DC, but I specifically mentioned to Josh at this meeting, hey, I'm in a situation right now where I'm at risk of losing custody of my children if I move to Ohio. And so I think he saw that as an opportunity because he has a pattern of finding someone's vulnerability and saying, ah, I see somebody who desperately needs this. That's, that's an opening for me. That's an opening for me to have a potential sexual relationship with that person. So we talked a little bit about custody. He was also going through some custody disputes at the time. So we talked about the difficulty of that, talked about our joint interests in chess, and then he offered to walk me to my car. And at that point I thought, that's really unusual. My car is right across the street. This is a safe neighborhood. I can see my car from here. And I thought, I don't wanna offend him. So I'll let him walk me to my car. And to be honest, I don't really have a problem. I like it sometimes if people walk me to my car when it's not a safe neighborhood. But in that particular instance, I didn't need anybody to walk me to my car. It was 8 p.m. in a bustling area of Northern Virginia. So he walks me to my car and then we get to my car door and he goes in for a hug. And instead of just doing one of those kind of you lean forward with the top of your shoulders and pat somebody on the back kind of hugs like would be normal for a professional hug, he uh, pulls me in and his entire body is pressed right against my body. And that kind of hug felt inappropriate for a work meeting. 
And then he holds it there for an uncomfortably long time. I open my car door and then turn. And then he gets this look on his face like, oh, maybe she didn't think that this was a date. This probably, she thought this was a hiring meeting. I should make it clear. At the time, I just thought, okay, I got out of him acting a little weird. Uh, Let's just continue with this discussion and see where it goes. And so I told him, as as one would normally follow up after a hiring meeting, I sent a little thank you note. Thank you so much for meeting with me. I really appreciate your help on the market. It was a pleasure to talk to you about the job market and chess and things like that. That's also very typical following these types of informal hiring meetings. And then he responds later that night and he sends me an email. He switches over to his personal account for this email. We'd previously been talking on his GMU email address. So he switches over to his personal account, which is not subject to FOIA the same way that his GMU email is. And he asks me out in writing. He says, hey, can we make next time a date? And he tries to kind of couch it as, oh, you don't have to by saying, oh, well, you know, if you don't want to, that's fine. We'll just keep talking about the job market. But I felt a lot of pressure that if I said no, that I would be losing out on his support. He really seemed to indicate to me that he was advocating for me and supporting me and really wanted me in that position and thought that I would be a good fit for the university. And he thought that the dean would go along with that. He thought that the dean would want to hire me because of what I offered to the school. But that that idea that I had turned out to be totally false, that those promises were a pretense for him asking me out. And then I thought, gosh, this entire meeting must have just been a pretense. I reached out to some other professors that I know at George Mason. I had previously that year been in a fellowship that was designed to prepare people for the teaching market that was hosted at George Mason and taught by uh, one George Mason professor and some professors from other top universities. And I reached out to the person running the program who was then also involved in the intellectual property group. And I told him what happened. I said, hey, I just want to get a gut check from you because it seems to me like Josh is promising that I'm definitely a shoe in And after he asked me out last night, I'm not so sure what I believe anymore. And by the way, it's pretty inappropriate that he asked me out. <laughs> and the professor says, okay, I'll give you a call this weekend. So that was a, a Thursday. And, and so I talked with him that weekend on Saturday or Sunday. And I think that professor didn't really know what to do. Uh, It was a male professor, and I think he really wanted to help, but had no idea what he was supposed to do. And so he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll figure out what the hiring situation is and get you an honest answer. And, and I'll keep, you know, what happened with right in confidence and see if I can do anything to fix it while protecting your confidentiality. And so I think for him, that also might have put him in a difficult spot because he probably felt like he couldn't say too much while protecting me. But he asked around and tried to get a more honest answer about the hiring situation. And he sort of indicated that it's unlikely that they're going to hire an IP. They have so many IP professors. That's not something that they're likely to do. And it seems like the funding's not there for a new hire right now. And so I was, I was a little bit hurt by this because I felt like I believed what Josh had said, that this was a job opportunity where I was a shoe in. And I reached out to Josh again and I said, you know, Hey, I'm hearing from the other folks that there might not really be as much of a, as much of an opportunity here as I thought. And. By the way, I will note that before this conversation with Josh, 
uh, this next conversation with Josh, I had raised to him, look, I think there are ethics and professional responsibility problems with the conversation that we're having about this, this date that you asked me on. And I told him that I didn't feel comfortable given the professional responsibility problems here and the ethics problems here. And I was trying not to say, are you kidding? I have no interest in going out with you because I knew that that would have made him mad. I knew that that would have made me lose his support. So I tried to be gentle and I tried to say, oh, oh no, you know, ethics. That's the reason I can't go out with you. Not, I'm not interested. So it was, it was a struggle to be honest. And I probably dragged it out too long before giving him a clear no. And once I gave him a clear no, after I talked with another professor at George Mason and got better indication that there wasn't in fact a likelihood of getting hired there, I reached out to Josh and this was after I had already told Josh no. And I said, you know, I'm hearing that the other professors are telling me there's not really as much of an opportunity as we thought, you know, can you give me an update on the status of your conversations with the Dean about whether I'm a good fit and what the hiring likelihood is and what the funding availability is. And he said, oh, you know, it looks like maybe the funding might be a little bit more difficult than we anticipated, but if you can secure independent funding from the intellectual property program, then we might be able to get you hired but I just don't think that we're going to be able to get the funding coming from the main university after all. And so I thought, okay, well, oh, maybe if I just reach out to the other professors, I, I can get that funding if they have it and we'll see. But I didn't realize at the time that that was his way of saying, I am no longer going to push to support you. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out and kind of embarrassed myself, frankly, in front of the other professors by saying, oh, you know, I, I hear that all I might need to do is get some fundraising. Um, so can I ask about what funds we have from the centers to potentially fund a hire? And in, in hindsight, one of the professors who, I, who didn't know about Josh asking me out reached out to me last week actually and said, oh, I was so confused when you reached out to me asking about funding for the position because I thought there was no way that we were going to hire somebody else in intellectual property and no way that we had the university funding for that. So I was really confused when you reached out to me, but now it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you recently posted on Twitter, George Mason University's response to all that's come out since Josh's departure. Could you share with our listeners what it said and what was your reaction to that? Yeah, so George Mason sent a response to students. They've never responded to me, but they sent a response to students saying that they have heard that there's some allegations by former students and one potential hire about allegations about an unnamed professor <laughs> and that professor has resigned. And then they provided some resources for those who would like to accuse someone of sexual harassment, citing to the Title IX resources page. So were you satisfied with that response? I was happy that George Mason was telling students, here's how you report. I also appreciate that they included in the email that if you don't want to go that route, you can also bring an anonymous claim or raise a claim directly with the Dean and that they would try to work on doing something about it. But in my experience with George Mason, those paths don't actually get anything done. And that was the same experience that so many other people that reported Josh to the administration had, according to their stories. When I tried to report this directly to HR, this was several months after I had initially told that other professor. I reached out to HR via 
whatever email I could find on the website, I believe it was employee relations because I couldn't find anything on the website that made it easy to say, hey, I was sexually harassed or I experienced discrimination, who do I contact? But I reached out to employee relations and I told them what happened. And I said, hey, can we do something to stop this guy? Especially to stop him from being in a role of hiring chair. And they forwarded the email on to the diversity, equity, inclusion team. There was a particular person on the team that I will name because I think there are some problems that happen there. Um, there was a person there named Kyle that took over responding to my allegations. And I've since learned that Kyle is the same person in diversity, equity, inclusion that Dorsey was communicating with at the same time about her allegations with Wright. And both of us were telling Kyle all the horrible things that Wright had been doing. And I forwarded all the emails. I had an hour long Zoom meeting with Kyle at George Mason's diversity, equity, inclusion team. And then nothing happened, at least nothing that I could see. Now, when I reached out again, about a year later, I thought that George Mason would have done something about it. But Wright was still there. Now, I don't know if they did anything in the background. For example, I believe that year was the first year that Josh was not the hiring chair since I can remember, ever since I'd been applying since 2017 or 2018, Josh had been the hiring chair and he was not the chair for the first time that hiring cycle in 2022-2023. But again, that was a that was a year later. And if that's all they did, and I don't even know if that's why they changed it. But anyway, when I reached out to HR again in 2022, they seemed surprised by the allegations. They acted like they had lost the files. They didn't know about it. They were asking me to tell them the story again. And they said, we had a lot of turnover in HR recently and we don't have everything. I had to resend them all the things. I had to redo my conversations with them. And I thought that talking to HR and telling them my story and sending them the emails was going to be enough for them to do something. But then they told me, if you want to pursue anything, you're going to need to file a Title IX complaint. And for me, I thought, well, there's no remedies that matter for me personally for a Title IX complaint. And I already told you all the information that would allow you to act. I sent you the emails. I gave you an interview. Why can't you do anything with that? And at the time I was facing a lot of difficult situations with my custody still, I had moved to Ohio and I was finally in a position where I could have my children with me, but I had no concrete schedule and my childcare was inconsistent. I have a child with special needs and it's been, it was difficult to get childcare for him. And so I was in a position where I just didn't have time to go file a Title IX complaint in another state for a school that I had no connection with and no interest in being employed by and where there was no potential for any remedy that would benefit me. So I thought, I've done enough. I've sent them all the information. They should do something about it. And it wasn't until almost a year after that that he finally resigned. And that was not in response to any of my allegations I believe that was in response to Dorsey's Title IX claims. So if it weren't for Dorsey filing those Title IX claims, nothing would have been done. Josh Wright would still have access to dozens of female assistants, students, potential hires. He would have still been in a position to sexually coerce people in the way that he did for Dorsey and Landry and Wagstaff and many others. George Mason, seems to have not done what they should have done in a timely fashion to protect people when they saw that there was a real threat of people getting hurt. Related to what you just said, there was a tweet 
yesterday morning. Now, today is, uh, by the way, August 16th, 2023, when we're recording this. There was a tweet yesterday morning on August 15th by someone named Jenny O'Hara that said, quote, I was in Prof. Wright's economics class during my one year at Mason in 2017 to 2018. On our final exam, he included a question asking us to calculate the utility a male employer gains from sexually harassing his female employees. We notified administration, nothing was done. And then there's a, a follow-up um, tweet in that same thread where Jenny O'Hara says, quote, the multiple choice options included things like A, keep sexually harassing women, B, stop hiring women. He has not only been behaving like this for years, but he has openly bragged about it. Mason has known and still gave him a fresh batch of one else to teach every year, end quote. What was your reaction when you saw that? As a professor, I am aware of research that when you include a question in an exam that frames a particular outgroup, like a person that's subjected to sexual harassment, a person that's subjected to trauma or a minority group, and you highlight something about that in your exam question, that reduces the performance of that group in your exam. I'm aware of that research. I imagine that many professors are aware of that research, either explicitly or intuitively. I would be shocked if Professor Wright didn't know when he wrote that exam that that was going to reduce the performance of the women who had experienced sexual harassment, particularly if those women had experienced sexual harassment from him. Is there anything you'd like to see from George Mason faculty, Josh's former colleagues? And I'm talking about things like either individual statements or collective statements supporting the alleged victims or, or anything else. Yeah. Josh writes sexual harassment was a known secret at George Mason and in the antitrust community. There are people that I reached out to about my experience who told me, oh, there are so many other people who've gone through way worse than you with Josh Wright. Repeatedly, I heard this. And I thought, if it was such an open secret, why didn't anybody stop him? Especially if he was sleeping with these women, because the, the level of violation of their autonomy and their dignity that happens when he has had access to women to do this over and over is horrendous. The law school is putting their female students and their female hires in a position where their dignity and autonomy is going to be taken away by somebody that they are enabling. So is it really true that they couldn't do anything about this unless somebody was going to file a formal Title IX complaint against him? I think that the other professors at the school and everybody in the community who knew about his behavior should have said something then, but they should definitely say something now. We can't be in a situation where now that Josh Wright is entering private practice, that he's continuing to receive students, interns, new hires, that are going to be subjected to the same risk of violation that he subjected them to when he was a professor. Anybody who doesn't speak up is enabling him. The university has shown that they're not going to do anything about it absent a formal Title IX complaint. So if the university is not going to do anything, unless there's a formal complaint that goes all the way through and proves all the allegations true, well, then the community needs to do something about it where the process fails. If the community can't step up and speak out and say, I heard all of this before, I was aware this happened, everybody was aware this was happening, nobody should be sending young women to Josh Wright ever again. If the community can't step up and say that, you're enabling him. So in my mind, everybody who knew that this was happening should come out now and say, I knew this was happening. This needs to stop. From now on, if people are doing this, if professors are harassing their students, if professors are harassing their hires, if professors are alleging quid pro quo arrangements or proposing quid pro quo arrangements in order to get access to dates and sex, 
somebody needs to say something about it. And we can use the market to stop that behavior. If everybody knows what's happening, they won't send him clients, they won't send him employees. That's the way this stops, is by everybody speaking up. If the process fails, let free speech and the market do the work and stop him from ever having access to employees or business again. Do you think that any former colleagues who knew are afraid for their own reputations if they were to admit now that they had awareness of this happening? And, you know, the story that I think about just talking about it from that angle, not necessarily drawing exact um, comparisons otherwise, but talking about it from that angle was when the allegations against Judge Kaczynski came out. And I saw one male former clerk of his, who's a law professor, speak up and say, in that case, say, I didn't know, I'm basically I'm horrified by this, if memory serves, you know, had I known, you know, I would have done something about it. And there were not a lot of other male voices to be heard at that time. Do you think there's just not much of an incentive for people to speak up because if you're a George Mason professor right now, you might think like, well, what this person was doing was not my problem. I was not controlling him. Maybe they even tried to say something to the administration at some point, nothing was done, right? Different people might be in different situations. And, and certainly it's theoretically possible that some people genuinely just didn't know, right? Maybe they, they were not in his area and they were doing other things. So it, I suspect, in these situations, one usually deals with a mix of levels of knowledge. And so what do you think is the solution? I mean, is it sort of social pressure, but social pressure against whom, right? Because we, at least you and I, don't necessarily have that much knowledge about which specific individual knew what and at what time. And so I, I was just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult balance because it's true that speaking up has a reputational effect that's negative. I myself am disappointed that I didn't speak up publicly until now. And in part, I excused that because I thought I had done everything I needed to do by sending everything to the administration. I thought, if I send them all my emails and I give them an interview telling them what happened, that they should be able to take it from there. And it didn't even really dawn on me that they wouldn't fix it. I thought that I could trust the administration to fix it. And so many people might be in a similar boat where they say, there's a reputational problem for me speaking out in public. And so I'm going to go through private channels and tell his employer what happened and then let them deal with it. But we've seen in practice that that doesn't work for some employers. So I think that this could be a wake up call for folks that enables almost a window of immunity for people to say, hey, now I'm gonna tell the story about what I knew. Now is an opportunity where I don't think people are going to judge you too harshly, or if they do, they shouldn't. I don't think people are going to judge too harshly if somebody said, I raised it with the administration and I thought that that would be enough. I'm going to speak out publicly now because now I'm learning that that wasn't enough. I think that's okay. People learn, people can find new ways to stop behavior that they thought was problematic. So in my mind, I think now's the perfect time for people to speak up and say what they knew about what happened. And if, if this is, hey, I knew for 20 years that this was happening, but I didn't know it was that bad. 
or I knew for 20 years this was happening, but I thought that I did enough by telling one or two people. I think that's understandable. I think, I think we should have grace with people that have the bravery to come out now and say, Hey, this is what happened. And I knew about it because that supports the victims who are coming forward now. And it helps to prevent future conduct. I think one of the things that also gets tricky is if a student did come to a professor and said, this bad thing happened to me, et cetera, violate certain rules, professors do have reporting obligations. Right. And so if they violated those reporting obligations, I, I could just imagine that for some people, that's going to be one of the reasons not to speak out. But I suspect that in a lot of these situations, people just heard things through the grapevine. It wasn't necessarily something where they had a reporting obligation. So they're not in trouble. They're not in trouble for saying, yeah, I heard rumors. I didn't really know what to make of them or what to do, or perhaps this person was very powerful and I was afraid, right? Uh, I, I think you're making a really good point that there is this period now of there being an opportunity to come out and talk about that discomfort and and talk about the situation they were perhaps put in could be by a previous administration or or something like that would you say it's fair to state that women perceived as troublemakers including those who call out bad behavior who call out sexual harassment or gender discrimination have to worry about getting hired at the entry level or laterally in the legal academy and what do we do about that if so yes there's a lot of concern for many women but i'll speak to my own experience that i worried that if i said anything publicly that now i have this mark on my search history that is something other than what I want to be known for. I want to be known for my writing. I want to be known for my advocacy in the intellectual property space. I don't necessarily want to be known as somebody who's going to root out every case of harassment. And now I understand that that's an important thing to do, but that isn't what I wanted to be known for. And I worry about how that affects my job prospects. Now, for me, I reached out to some of my mentors and recommenders who, to be fair, told me that I need to go through official reporting channels immediately when I told them about it. And I was, I was scared to do that. I thought, I just don't have the time to do a Title IX complaint and I'm not going to get anything out of it. I thought, I think if I tell HR, that should be enough. And so I kind of left it alone against their recommendation to go do what's right and file a formal Title IX complaint. But it just seemed like so much work when I had zero time. We need to explain to listeners that it's not like if you filed a Title IX complaint and that Title IX complaint was vindicated you were not going to get a job out of that. You right. were not going to get most likely any worthwhile like financial compensation out of that. Yeah, there was nothing for me to gain from filing a Title IX complaint other than having some formal determination that he had acted in that way. That's the only benefit that would have come. And I didn't think that that was going to be useful for me. And I thought that telling the administration would be enough to protect other people. Now I'm not a Title IX expert and I've been learning more about Title IX, but I'm still not an expert. I had no idea that the university's position was that unless somebody files and succeeds in a Title IX complaint, they won't do anything to stop harassment. Well, and we need to be clear that 
there was nothing stopping a university from having informal conversations with faculty members and say things like, hey, we're hearing such and such. If those things are accurate, they need to stop, right? You don't need a whole process for that. Right. You need a process for sanctioning someone, as, as there should be one. But just to, to say, hey, like we are not, if this turns out to be true and, and if this starts happening, we're, we're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior at our school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the university could have done much more to protect students, even in the absence of formal complaints, when they're hearing from students and hires over two decades that his conduct was problematic. They should have had a conversation with him and they should have put situations in place to prevent him from doing that. So for example, with the students saying that, and I've now heard from multiple people that he's done this. It's not just um, the allegations from Dorsey and Landry. For example, if a professor is going to take a student on a business trip, that should need to be disclosed to the administration so that they can put situations in place to protect that student. He would set up what he told the students were business meetings, according to the allegations, and then the students would show up in a remote location in a single hotel room, stranded from any access to travel or vehicles or ways to get out. Now. I imagine if the administration had policies in place to say, hey, we know this person is a serial harasser from these previous discussions, maybe we should make sure that he's not taking students on business trips where he's going to be able to put them in a single hotel room with him and then restrict their access to travel. So maybe they should have a policy that says, if you're going to take a student on a trip, you have to provide some sort of documentation about how you're providing accommodations to make sure that it reduces the risk of harassment, or in this case, coercive sexual assault. I'm thinking of at least one other story involving sexual harassment of both faculty and memory serves at least one student where there was also travel involved. This was at a different university that professor was finally removed after many years of process. And so the the travel sort of carrying a special risk, I think is a, is an important, is an important point here. Uh, And sort of settings, right. Settings matter Mm -hmm. in that sense. Also thinking about, you know, where are students hanging out with professors also thinking about how to, we all protect our own students by creating norms that there are certain things that you you don't do. You might not hang out alone with that student in an intimate space, right? Just uh, for for the ma- for for optics alone, um, and just to reduce the risk of anything. So you know, the legal academy has had. If we sort of zoom out, the legal academy has had its share of stories over the last decade or so about misbehaving professors and deans, the large majority of them male. What is it about the current rules or culture that enables predatory behavior, according to you? In my mind, I think there's two facets that enable predatory behavior. One is the insufficient information that people who are victims have about the impact of reporting. So first, the victims should know if the university has a policy of not taking action on anything that's other than a Title IX complaint, but students are not generally given that impression. Normally, they think that if they tell professors or they tell the administration what happened, that they're going to get protected. They think that the administration is going to look out for them. And that asymmetry of information, I think, enables predators because the predators know that the university is not going to act on those allegations. I think the other thing is setting, as you said. If we have informal settings for hiring that 
enable easily blurred lines between personal and professional, that can be problematic. So for example, if like me, you think that in order to get hired at a school, you reach out by email to the person listed as the hiring chair to get that job, and then you meet with that person, and then eventually you're going to get a series of interviews with the larger faculty. If that's the process, then that encourages hiring chairs who are bad actors to lure people in to meet with them under the pretense of having a hiring meeting, which is what happened with me and Josh Wright. So in my mind, we need more formality in the hiring process. The school needs to know anytime that somebody who's a hiring chair is going to be meeting with somebody who's seeking a job. And the school needs to know about the setting of that meeting. Even if this is something like, hey, I'm at AALS, and I'm a hiring chair, and there's somebody who wants to work for us who wants to have lunch with me, I'm going to let the university know. I'm going to put that in some sort of record so that people know who I was talking with and in what setting. I think that having formality and documentation around the types of hiring meetings that are taking place would improve the, would improve the otherwise problematic setting problems that we're seeing. Yeah, and maybe, you know, a hiring chair didn't know initially that a lunch was supposed to be about hiring. But once they find out, they could, you know, they could mention it at that time. I mean, another possibility would be to say, if you're on uh, the hiring chair, or maybe even just if you're on the hiring committee that year, you cannot, in that academic year, have uh, romantic sexual interactions with any candidates or, you know, depending on the order in which things happen, if you had already had an interaction that was still ongoing, right? Like that person can now not be a candidate. I mean, there are different ways of framing this, but it does sound like that is particularly fraught. I, I like your proposal to say that anybody who's a hiring chair or on the hiring committee is not permitted to start a romantic relationship or sexual relationship with anyone who is a prospective job candidate. And that would include meetings with pretty much anybody who has the potential to lateral to your school. If you're having a meeting at AALS with somebody who is at another school, that's somebody that could be potentially interested in a lateral opportunity. You should not start a sexual relationship with them. Yeah, I mean, there, and we're obviously speaking casually here, but that's why schools form committees to study these things and come up with formal proposals. And you know, there, there are things that can be done if you care to do them. And I think there are gonna be certain types who are gonna push back on some of these things, right? And it's, you know, it's, it's a fight. It's a fight. Uh, a lot of people don't want to have to report to their institution what they did. And, and normally, right, in most situations, no, your, your personal life is not your institution's business. But this is no longer your personal life. And I agree with you, the sort of lack of formality. And, and, and some situations are going to be really difficult to control. Like, here's an example, right? Let's say somebody helps to get someone hired that they have a romantic or sexual interest in. They don't behave inappropriately during the hiring process. But now that person comes in and that person either, A, is not on tenure track and so does not have a whole lot of job protections or is on tenure track. But the way that these things usually work is that the first normally about six years are almost like a probation period in the academy. I think we need to explain that to our listeners who are not part of this field. And so somebody could derail your tenure also, right? So even once you're at a school, there is this question of should people who are already tenured be allowed to date people who are untenured? And I think this all gets especially tricky in academic communities that are, shall we say, in the middle of nowhere, 
right? Or professors might say like, well, the dating pool is already super limited and, and it happens that faculty want to date one another and it's not always nefarious. But right. when you're dealing with power imbalances, it becomes tricky and maybe it started off innocently, but then maybe the people break up and there is some sort of acrimonious post breakup period. And I just, I just think that I have not heard a lot of conversations about these topics uh, over the, the time that I've been in the legal academy. So I've started my first tenure track job in 2009. And so I've, you know, I've, been around the block a couple times in in this business and we don't really hear those conversations and i feel like they probably especially don't happen at institutions where they should happen but i definitely think that your willingness to come forward well in this case as we've seen has had a very direct effect on other people being willing to come forward against that particular individual but i also think it is sending a message at large to other potential victims to tell their story because there's also strength in numbers. And the more of these stories come out, whether we're talking harassment or we're talking discrimination, one individual might be seen as a troublemaker. But when we start seeing that some of the problems are structural and that, hey, there are now a lot of quote unquote troublemakers you're going to have to not hire, you know, if you don't want to have that woman on your faculty who could start a lawsuit or who could speak out on social media or anything like that. I think that's what it's really about. And it was very interesting to see other female law professors say, yes, I have had that kind of experience also. And they generally did not name names. They didn't say who they had the experience with, but that they said this happened to them also. Uh, And so maybe this is a first step, right? This is a first step and there are going to be more such steps. And along those lines, you know, uh, one last question I want to ask you is, it seems like some of the hardest to combat situations have arisen when a harasser was especially powerful. So it was the dean of an institution, or it was somebody who brought in a lot of money or prestige in some other way on a faculty. How do we motivate institutions to do the right thing, even in those situations? Is it mainly by speaking out on social media and places like that? Is it something else? What are your views on that? In my views, I think that universities should have processes in place to reduce the risk of harassment in those situations. So one of the things that made the Josh Wright situation so problematic for many of his victims is that he came in as a former FTC commissioner and was put in a position of power repeatedly by being the hiring chair year after year after year after he returned from the FTC. And everybody at the school told me, Professor Wright's the one that has the sway with the dean. Professor Wright's the one that makes the decisions and the dean goes along with them. As long as you have somebody who's in that position of power, they will feel like they can do whatever they want. So universities need to set up processes to prevent people from being in repeated positions of power. So for example, at my current school, Cleveland State, I was on the hiring committee, I believe uh, two years ago, and we have done the best we can to cycle professors on and off of the hiring committee and to cycle professors on and off of the position as hiring chair. Now that can be difficult when you have a small faculty and not a lot of people wanting to serve on the committee, but the Dean has been really great about hustling to say, look, we need more people to serve on this committee. Please somebody new come onto this committee. And I think as long as you have that rotation of power, that reduces the risk that you're always going to have this go-to that has complete authority and power over all of the potential hires like Josh Wright did. I think another way that we can help to prevent this problem from arising in the future is showing our unconditional support to those who are victims of harassment. When I raised what Josh Wright had done to my mentors, they told me 
first of all, go report so that you can help other women. But they told me, we support you unconditionally and we will do everything in our power to make sure that this has no negative effects for your future job prospects. We want to make sure that speaking out doesn't have any consequences that are negative for you. That was so meaningful to me that they did that. And it's not just one person or two people. I had all of my mentors that recommended me for the job that I have now tell me that they unconditionally support me and will make sure that this doesn't impact my career. That was so powerful. That's that's huge, Krista. I think this is such a powerful and beautiful note to end on because it, it really shows also the, the power of third parties, people who genuinely have no fault in this and no affiliation with any of this situation, but who can still help, who can be allies, who can be the people that can help to make sure that, hey, the truth comes out and that we can protect faculty and staff and students from predators and at the same time make sure that it, it doesn't hurt people who have already been hurt. That is one of the things, and I do want to say this very, very clearly. It is outrageous that you and others have been put, and often to this day are put in the situation where you have been harmed, and now you run the risk of being harmed further just because somebody out there decided to do the wrong thing, decided to exercise power over you in inappropriate ways, decided to do the wrong thing when it was so easy for them to do the right thing. And this is something that a, a friend of mine who's also in the legal academy, he said to me, why can't people just behave? <laughs> because you have been put in this really difficult situation of having to decide, do I report, do I not report? How far do I go with reporting? Even if I report, what, what am I really getting out of this versus the harm to myself and my career? And all of these things, when it was so easy, I mean, I can tell you for myself, and I'm sure you feel the same way, not sleeping with students is one of the absolutely easiest parts of my job. It's yeah. not hard to not sleep with your students. It is not hard to not ask out job candidates. It is not hard to not go around. And if it is not go around harassing people, if it really is hard for you, you need to get help. This is a you problem, you person that is doing these things, especially the people who are doing this serially. And that's what we're seeing in legal academia is a number of serial harassers who were, as you've been describing so well, who were not stopped for years. So really, I think it is the responsibility of everybody in this profession to help. And the way that you help is you don't let stuff like that happen at your own institution and you help the victims at your own institution and you speak up whenever and wherever you can. And then also, even when it's somebody at a different institution, you find ways to help that person because that person has been harmed and it's wrong. And it is wrong, especially for those of us in, I'm going to speak here to people in the law. We go into those classrooms and we tell our students that, you know, here's how you follow the law. Here's how you advocate for victims. Here's how you restore justice. And, and just the amount of absolute hypocrisy that I have seen when it comes to upholding laws, when it comes to sexual harassment and discrimination of all sorts, makes me wonder how many of these people can look at themselves in the mirror every day. But as you said, it is never too late to change. And hopefully today we have given people some information and some motivation to take whatever steps they are able to take to turn this around and to improve the profession. Krista, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for your bravery. You will be remembered as one of the people that sought to bring justice to this profession and that improved women's lives more than 
most people will over their entire careers. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And I will say I wish that I wasn't the person that would be known for taking down a harasser in the profession. I wish that he would go away, but I want to thank Dorsey in particular for filing the Title IX claim because if she hadn't done that, Josh Wright would still be at George Mason University continuing the conduct that I and other women have complained about for decades. Speaking up is helpful for getting the conversation going and it's helpful for outing bad behavior and bringing it to light and helping people feel not alone. But it's Dorsey's action to file this Title IX complaint that we really should be thinking in this situation. And I'm hopeful that we can set up new processes and new systems to make it easy for victims to report and to make sure that we have processes in place to limit the ability of harassers to continue harassing people. Thank you so much, Krista. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. You can also support us financially at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com. We really appreciate it as you would help us defray the cost of producing this podcast for you. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Freeney, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.